adults and college ministry. And we would meet late in the evenings, after hours, at the Woods Coffee Shop in downtown Bellingham at the Flatiron Building. And we'd run that ministry. We had worship. We had time in the text. Um, and then we would just stay till all hours of the morning, dialoguing, mostly with these Western students, uh, about the Bible. And it was a great time. And one of my favorite parts of that was that I got to dialogue, I got to ask questions, or I'm sorry, answer questions for non-believers. And that's a pretty special thing. They come curious, they come hungry, they're looking for answers, and we get to tell them about Jesus and the hope that we have in Christ. I remember one night in particular, uh, this, this young guy showed up, he sat through the worship, he sat through the message, he was very engaged, but he wanted to talk afterwards. So I grabbed a cup of coffee, we sat down, Say, hey, I'm all ears. Ask your questions. I'll see if I can help. Uh, and he was, a, he was a smart guy. He was kind of skeptical. Uh, but he was, he was well-read. He had read through the New Testament. Um, he didn't have a great grasp on it. I feel like he maybe was a little bit misguided. He was just trying to understand. So we were walking him through things, uh, answering questions. And at the end of it, I, I, we must have talked for about two hours. It was well after midnight when we got out of there. At the end of it, he called me a name. Well, he called us a name. He called Christians a name. And I'm going to tell you that name in just a minute. And you might be offended by it, but I'm going to tell it to you. And then I think after we talk about it, maybe you'll agree. All right? So here's what he said. He said, Matt, I get all that. And we were talking about church, like the church service at that point. He's like, I get all that, but I just got to say, Christians are weird. Yeah, we are. And again, we were talking about the Christian service, like what we do here. He's like, Matt, it's just bizarre. It's just bizarre. So if you've been saved for a while, if you've been a believer for a while, it might not be immediately apparent to you. But if you're a newer Christian and you've had that experience as, as maybe an outsider looking in, what I'm about to tell you is, is going to make sense. All right? So let me just walk you through what I was talking about with that young guy. We we're talking about church. And he says, okay, so, and just start nodding. When you feel like, hey, this is, this is kind of weird, as an outsider looking in, just start nodding, okay? So he says, um, all right, so you've got this sacred space, right? And you've got your name on the outside of your sacred space, and you tell people to show up at this place, at this time, um, at the same time, every week, right? Come to us, come in here, come to our sacred space. And then once people get there, you close the doors, and everybody goes into one room. And after that, music starts up, and people start chanting, right? <laughs> Singing, chanting, it's kind of the same. So you chant for a while, and then the leader comes up, right, are you nodding yet? And gives us instruction for life. Eventually, though, uh, the leader sits down, people come forward, and they take your money, <laughs> right? And then they leave again, and then they'll come back a short time later, and they'll bring you the world's smallest meal. Did you just buy that? You got this little cup of juice and a little piece of bread, and they hand it out. And you're thinking, that's not a very good use of money. And then the leader comes back up, and he says, quoting somebody who died 2,000 years ago and came back from the dead, right? He says, 
this is my body, eat it, this is my blood, drink it. Right? We call that communion. The rest of the world calls that cannibalism. In fact, that's something that the early church got in trouble for. The first Christians in the Roman Empire were thought to be cannibals by the Romans, and they were persecuted for that. Right? So this whole thing is kind of strange. If you don't understand why we do what we do, all that sounds kind of weird. Right? Are you nodding? That's bizarre. But if you understand why we do what we do, then it's not weird at all. It's a glorious, amazing truth. And that's what I want to get at this morning. We're going to be talking about communion. I want to talk about the backstory, and I want you to leave today with an understanding of why we do what we do. All right? I think that uh, oftentimes in church, we have this assumed knowledge base. You come in here, and most of us kind of have a clue as to what's going on, or at least we think we do. But sometimes there's people among us who don't. I mean, communion's kind of weird. Baptism's kind of weird. Why do we do these things? I want us to ask those questions, and I want to explore together. All right? So open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. This is where we're going to start, and then eventually we're going to be in Jeremiah 31. But I want to begin in Luke chapter 22. I hope you understand my heart where I'm coming from. I'm not trying to be flippant. I think these truths are amazing and wonderful. But as an unsaved college kid, an outsider looking in, to him it was bizarre. Right? Can you see that? So we had the chance to walk him through some of these things. And the following week, he joined us at Grace. So uh, those were worthwhile conversations. Luke 22. This is one of my favorite chapters. It's so subtle. But Jesus is awesome. Jesus is so cool. And this, this paragraph here, beginning at, um, at 22.7, is just so fun to me. The stuff that he does. So let me get you caught up a little bit here. Uh, this is Jesus' final few days on earth in his ministry. Um, he's in Jerusalem. The following day will be Friday. This Luke 22 is on a Thursday. They're celebrating Passover. And after that, Jesus is going to be going to his death um, uh, the following morning, afternoon. But here he is with his disciples, and they're celebrating a feast. The text calls it, uh, in verse 1, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also known as Passover. Also known as Passover. Passover comes from the book of Exodus. Uh, as you know, Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And God came and he delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he did so with uh, ten plagues. Very famous event in the book of Exodus. The final one of those plagues was a plague of death. And here's what God said. He said, everybody needs to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood over your door. And when God passes over, if he sees that blood, then your firstborn son will live. Anyone who does not have the blood around his doorpost, that family's firstborn son will die. The nation of Israel was delivered. The Egyptians lost their firstborn sons. That event was called Passover. And afterwards, a memorial feast was celebrated each year to commemorate God's mighty act of salvation in the Old Testament. All right, are you with me? So Jesus and his guys, the day before his death, are celebrating this meal. And this is what I think is so cool. Um, verse 7, so they're going to celebrate this. It's the day where the Passover lamb is going to be sacrificed. Verse 8, Jesus says to Peter and John, go make preparations for us to eat Passover. And they say back to him, well, where? And this is the part that's so cool. Jesus says, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. This is very clandestine. I love it. 
follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. That's so cool. Did he set this up beforehand without anybody knowing? Is this the son of God just knowing what's going to happen and knowing that these people will be receptive and provide a place? I'm not sure. Maybe some of both. But that's cool. Jesus does some cool things. So he tells his guys, go prepare this place. Um, the upper room is what it has become known as. And we're going to celebrate this meal. All right, so Passover was a lot like our version of Thanksgiving, uh, except that it had more of a spiritual dimension to it. Uh, it included a feast. Um, it included a time of giving thanks. Um, it commemorated a mighty saving event um, that God did in the Old Testament. And in fact, this one was even held on a Thursday. All right? So it's a lot like our Thanksgiving, if that helps you relate to it a little bit. So it's in this event that we get our now famous passages that we read during communion. This is where Jesus institutes communion. And he says this in verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, which is poured out for you. All right, so this is what I want to focus in on today, is that phrase, um, the new covenant. And maybe you've read that text before, and, and hopefully that triggers some questions in your mind. Okay, this is a new covenant. Well, what's the old covenant? And what was wrong with that covenant? Why didn't that covenant work? What's a covenant? We don't really use that word anymore. So all kinds of questions pop up when we start reading this passage. So what Jesus is doing is he's going to be replacing Thanksgiving, essentially. Previously, they celebrated Passover. Going forward, instead of Passover, this would, re would replace it. It would be communion. So previously, they're celebrating God's mighty act of salvation in the Old Testament. Going forward, they're going to celebrate God's mighty act of salvation in a new era, in the New Testament. It's what Jesus is going to accomplish. And we see this phrase, new covenant, and that's where we kind of start scratching our heads. What's that about? So in order to understand this, you've got to understand an Old Testament promise. Jesus is basing this new spiritual reality off of a promise from the Old Testament. To get this in Luke, you've got to get that. So that's where we're going to camp out today. And at the end of the service, when we come back and do communion, we'll be in Luke together. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Let me get you caught up a little bit. In about 1000 BC, King David reigned over Israel. And he had this united kingdom. After him was his son Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. You would think that the wisest man who ever lived would remain faithful to God, right? No, he didn't. His heart wandered and he worshipped other gods. After his death, the kingdom was split in two. They had a civil war, much like we in America had a civil war. So the people in the north, they retained the name Israel. And the people in the south, they took David's family name, Judah. David is from the kingly tribe of Judah. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. In 722 B.C., 
as the nation of Israel in the north continued to spiral into sin and spiral out of control, the Assyrians came in and they defeated the northern kingdom and they hauled the people off into captivity. Now, they had prophets warning them, turn back to Yahweh, turn back to God. And they failed to heed the prophets. Now, you're the southern kingdom. You just saw what happened to the northern kingdom. Prophets are warning them, turn back to God. So you're going to turn back, and and they didn't listen, you saw what happened. Now prophets are warning you, turn back to God. You're going to turn back to God, right? They do not. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon, and he wipes out uh, the tribe of Judah. He kills uh, thousands of them. He hauls off thousands more back to Babylon. And perhaps most stinging of all to the nation of Israel, he leveled the temple to Yahweh. He destroyed the temple and carried off the Ark of the Covenant, the vessels, all the sacred fixtures in the temple. This was a damaging blow to the people of Israel. The temple was everything. It was the locus of God. It was the location of God on earth. And now it's gone. What do you do? The prophet Jeremiah was warning them beforehand, turn back, turn back. This is going to happen to you just like it happened to your brothers in the north. And they didn't turn back. And now we get the new covenants in Jeremiah 31, 31. This was delivered by the prophet Jeremiah. Well, literally, he's sitting in the ashes of the burning temple. And God gives him this word to communicate to the people. A message of hope when there was no hope at all. I mean, imagine that. Everything that you've ever known and trusted in your identity as a people, um, the things that you believed in, gone. There's no hope. There's nothing. Now you're going to be slaves in a foreign land again. And here's the prophet still communicating God's truth. Here's what the text says. Follow along with me. Verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. All right, so the text says the days are coming. So at uh, some undisclosed point in the future, God is going to do this thing. And notice the text too says um, Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. So God, through the prophet, is communicating this future reunification. We're going to have a united kingdom once again. So at some undisclosed point in the future, we'll be back together And God is going to do some kind of a new covenant. All right, so let's define covenant. We don't use that word a whole lot. So what is a covenant? Just in its most basic terms, a a covenant is a promise or an agreement between two or more parties where you agree to do or not do certain things. Pretty basic. I think the closest parallel we have today would be marriage. Marriage is a covenant. When you get married... Um, you promise or you agree to be faithful, to support, to take care of the other person. All right, so this covenant is going to be made between two parties. So the the text up here says, um, I will cut a new covenant. I will cut a new covenant. That's uh, that's a different expression, one you're probably not used to. The imagery comes from uh, Genesis 15. So let me just walk you back there real quick. So God is making a covenant with the man Abraham. He has set his affection on Abraham. Abraham is going to be a channel of blessing to the world. And ultimately, Jesus will come from Abraham's line. 
So God is going to enter into a covenant with Abraham. What he does is he takes animals and he cuts them in half and he lines up the animals side by side. And what you would do in that time period is you would join hands, you would link arms, and the two people making the covenant would walk through these broken animal pieces together. And the meaning was very rich. It basically said this, if you violate the covenant that we are making, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be in pieces like these animals. So these covenants were a very serious thing, and they were ratified or they were made official by blood. So God is saying through his prophet, at some undisclosed point in the future, I know you can't imagine that right now, your temple's gone, you're gone, but at some point in the future, I will make a new covenant, I will cut a new covenant with a united people. Let's jump to the next verse here. The text says this, It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. All right, so what covenant is he referring to? He's referring to the Mosaic covenant. And this was a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt, that Passover event, the exodus, the deliverance. If you've never read, write this down, if you've never read Deuteronomy 28, it's the worst chapter in the Bible. Write down Deuteronomy 28. It is, it's, what I mean by the worst chapter in the Bible, you, the, the, the beginning of it starts off with um, the blessings of the covenant, and it's very short. If you obey, you will be blessed, and these are the ways in which you will be blessed. And then the entire next three pages of your Bible outline what happens if you do not obey the covenant. And it's terrifying stuff. It's awful stuff. Deuteronomy 28, you've got to understand Deuteronomy 28 in order to understand Israel's history. So write that down and read that this week. It's a terrifying passage. But the meaning is this, if you obey, you'll live. If you disobey, then the natural consequences of your sin are going to be the removal of protection and ultimately death for you. So this is something called a conditional covenant. Write this down, you have conditional covenant versus unconditional covenant. This is a conditional covenant. If you do this, then I will do this. But this covenant, the new covenant, this is going to be an unconditional covenant. Kind of like God's covenant with Abraham that we just mentioned. And that covenant, and his covenant with Abraham, he himself, by himself, he, God alone, walked through those cut up pieces. So he took the fulfillment of what was going to happen in that covenant on himself. Abraham played no part. In fact, after that covenant, Abraham went on to sin. And God still kept his covenant with Abraham. So you have a conditional covenant, the covenant of Moses, do this and live, disobey and die, versus an unconditional covenant, one in which God says, I have set my affection on you, and regardless of what you do, I'm going to make sure this covenant happens. So this is going to be an unconditional covenant. No more curses only blessings. Now, as we know, Israel's history under this covenant was one of persistent failure. They could not live up to its standards. And I think it's important to note that the law, or this first covenant, wasn't flawed and broken. It was good. The people were flawed and broken, and God knew that they needed something else. Something had to change, and this covenant, the new covenant, is going to be his solution to their sin problem. It's similar, 
but it's radically different. It's similar in some ways to the old covenant, but it's radically different. I was reminded of this uh, similar yet different type of a scenario uh, with an interaction with my kids that, uh, that I had not too long ago. So I've got two daughters, Abigail and Olivia. Abigail is five, Olivia is four. Um, this particular episode happened when they were two and three. Um, these girls are so much alike. They look alike. They talk alike. Um, they generally like the same things. But kind of their wiring, their makeup, they're very, very different. So this is how it was driven home to me. Uh, the girls came to me one day, and they, they just walked right up. I was sitting there studying. They walked right up, and you've got Abby. And she's, she's very cerebral. She's serious a lot of the time. She's a student. She's a reader. She's looking at me, studying me. And you've got Olivia. Olivia's kind of like, you know, wide-eyed and excited about everything. And clearly they want to ask something, so I set down my book. Yes, girls, what's going on? And Abigail says, Dada, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> it doesn't really work like that. Um, at the time, I was still on staff at Grace, and I said, well, this is what God has called our family to. I'm, I'm a pastor right now. This is, this is what we're doing. And Abby says, yeah, but what do you really want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I'm like, I, I, okay, you know what? No, let's just flip the table. I said, Abigail, what do you want to be when you grow up? Clearly that's why you're here. You want to tell me about this. What do you want to be when you grow up? And without missing a beat, she says, oh, I want to be a paleontologist who studies dinosaurs. I'm like, that's cool. That sounds like a lot of student loans, but that's cool, right? <laughs> dinosaurs are fun. Awesome. We'll find a way to make that happen. And I, then there's Olivia. She's rocking. She's just waiting for her turn, right? So I say, okay, Olivia, what do you want to be when you grow up? And just as quickly as Abby said paleontologist, Olivia shouted out, I want to be a bunny! <laughs> they're so similar, but they're so radically different at the same time. Similar, yet different. Similar, yet different. This is these covenants here. They're, they're going to be similar to the old one, but there are going to be some radical changes that are going to differentiate what God did previously to what God is going to do in the future. All right, let's keep going. Next verse here. Verse, um, I lost my spot here. 33, let me back up one then. Verse 33 says this. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. All right, let's get gross here for just a minute. Um, Israel's pagan neighbors used to sacrifice animals and people. And one of the things that they would do when they were offering sacrifices is they would ask their idols, they would ask their gods, what was going to happen in the future? And so then they would make their sacrifices, and they would cut open whatever they sacrificed, and they would pull out body parts looking for answers. And sometimes the priests and those pagan religions would actually inscribe things on the heart, on the liver, and on different parts. Kind of gross. The prophet Jeremiah borrows that imagery, and he says, the true God is actually going to write something, the truth, on your heart. It's an amazing image. So unlike those false gods and false priests who couldn't really accomplish anything, this God is actually going to do it. He's going to put it on the inside. So notice the shift now. There's a shift taking place from external obedience to inward heart change. 
So previously, the law was written on stone tablets and in a book. Going forward, it's going to be on the inside. Hearts previously made of stone are going to have God's truth on them. It's an amazing reality. I'm going to geek out with you for just a minute here. Um, let me back up. We're going to do a little Hebrew. I hope that's okay with you. So here we go. The word up there, husband, okay? Keep that in mind. There was a god, uh, a Canaanite god known as Baal or Baal. And he was kind of a leftover from the people who were in the land before Israel was there. And he was a mighty god. He was an idol. He was the god of fertility, the storm god, kind of the all-powerful being. The books of Joshua and Judges tell us that uh, Israel failed to eradicate the worship of this god. And eventually it got mixed in with their own worship. And that was one of the things that led to the, the two captivities. Captivity of the north, captivity of the south. The worship of this guy. So his name. B-A apostrophe A-L, Baal. In Hebrew, that exact same word exists, and it means husband or master. So the text here is, is so cool. It's an awesome pun. It says, um, I led them by the hand out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was their Baal. They broke the covenant with Baal, but I'm their Baal. And then we get down to the next verse, and it says this. I will be their God, and they will be my people. He's claiming them back. He's reclaiming them. He's going to be fully their God, and they will be wholly his people. All right, enough Hebrew. Let's go on to our last verse here. The text says this. Verse 34. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So this isn't saying that priests or teachers are obsolete. What it's saying is that they are no longer necessary to initiate and maintain a relationship with God. In this new covenant, everybody's going to have equal access to God. Do you remember when that happened? Jesus, after he was crucified, the temple veil was torn in two. So this box, um, the Ark of the Covenant, used to be kept in the Holy of Holies. That was hauled off and destroyed. Oh, you know what? I said Nebuchadnezzar did that. That was actually done in AD 70. Forgive me there. Um, but that, that was kept in the spot, the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go into that area once a year to offer sacrifices. And he would carry a bowl of incense so the smoke would block his eyes and he wouldn't be able to see it. He would just kind of do his thing and he would back out. They would tie a rope around his leg because if he failed, then he would die and they'd have to pull him out. This is very serious stuff. The Ark of the Covenant, you didn't mess with it. When Jesus died, that Ark was torn from the top to bottom, which indicated that only God could do that. If we were, you know, people were doing it, you have to tear from bottom to top. This huge veil was torn top to bottom. Now everybody had equal access to God. And that's what the prophet is talking about. When this new covenant happens, we're all going to be the same before God. We're going to have equal access to him. But the real kicker for this covenant, the thing that distinguishes it from the previous covenant, is this. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, the old covenant was not about forgiveness. It was about obedience. Do this and live. Disobey and receive curses. The new covenant is rooted in forgiveness. No 
more curses. I want to wrap up with uh, just one story of forgiveness that's just seared into my brain. Um, this happened to me when I was little, and I'll never forget it. Um, some folks are here that have probably heard the story a couple of times, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, I was a little guy, and I was probably, man, I was probably five or six at the time. And when I was little, I was really little. Like, I was, I was a tiny little guy. And my big brother was the exact opposite of me. I mean, he's just, he's just a beast of a human being. He's enormous. Uh, last time I saw him, he was 6'6", six, six, about 340. Um, yeah, just like the way you think of Greek gods is big. That's my brother. You know, as a seventh grader, he's getting recruited to play varsity football in high school. Just a, a massive, intimidating guy. Well, I was the opposite of that, but I still honestly believe that I was the toughest guy in the world. Probably because I had my big brother, right? He could protect me. Um, so I kind of had a big mouth. And I remember uh, one time after church, the families always used to go to Taco Time or Pizza Hut. We'd all get together afterwards and have lunch. And I remember one time we were at Taco Time, and all the kids, and the parents were inside talking, which was awful, and all the kids were outside playing in the field. And that was great. Well, I remember... I looked across the field, and I saw these other two boys over there. And, I mean, they're a long ways away. They're, like, that big, right? So, I don't know why I did this, but I yelled out, Hey, wimps! I'm, like, that big, right? And funny thing happened. As they got closer, they got bigger, right? So I see them, and I do one of these, and I go hide behind my brother, the wall, my brother was in fourth grade. I think these boys were in sixth grade. And it doesn't matter. He was bigger. Um, so I'm kind of hiding behind him, looking at what they're going to do. And they yelled out something like, hey, who said that? And my brother pulls one of these moves and sticks his arm out, right? He's not going to let anything happen to me. So they walk up, and they hit. One of the guys hits my brother in the face. He kind of goes back a little bit and then recoils. And those two guys took off running. Right? I'm like, yeah, Tim, way to go. That was amazing. And then he turned around and looked at me. And I was gone. <laughs> All the kids ran back inside. I'm trying to make confession to my parents before my brother gets in there. You know, just the, the craziness of all that. Parents decide to pack up. So we're, we're riding home in the van. And I'm just a little puddle of tears in the back of the van. My brother's sitting in the middle. He's got some ice on his jaw, just kind of coolly looking out the front window. But I see my dad's eyes in the rearview mirror, and he's just livid. So he says to my brother, he says, hey, Tim, whatever you want to do to Matt, I will do it. You just let me know. Oh, are you kidding me? So my brother, being the awesome big brother that he is, just looks in the back seat, sees me cowering in fear, and he says, no, I forgive him. I forgive him. That's forgiveness. And I'm like, yes, I'm saved, right? It's my earliest memory of forgiveness. That's what this new covenant is all about. It's rooted in forgiveness. And it's all about Jesus. He takes this upon himself. No animals are cut. Jesus is cut. No blood is spilt from an animal. Jesus' blood is spilt. So the new covenant marks this new beginning in the divine human relationship. Because, number one, it's given without conditions. It's internal, and it's focused on forgiveness. God will forgive our evil deeds, and he will not remember our sins anymore. 
is going to look at us and see us as a forgiven people because of this new covenant. So 600 years later when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, there's nothing weird about that. And you know the backstory. You see that it's a glorious, amazing, life-giving truth. And I call you to remember that this morning.